This is the Education Gadfly Show. This has got to be the most nuanced conversation about this issue that has ever taken place. That's good. All right. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, the Hurricane Irma of Education (laughs) Policy. Dr. Constance Lindsay. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> I had a, I, I, you know, we've been doing this for so long, and and I the pop culture. I, it is hard to come up with new material. Anything each week. Yes. I don't know what what to take of it. You're you're unpredictable. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. You uh, you know, destructive. Yeah. Uh, not destructive. I look. The thing about Irma, I mean, a lot of a lot of pain and suffering, and yet not as bad as it could have not been. As bad as I mean, been. it seems like it took like the one path through Florida that did the least damage. Sure. Uh, I was pretty shocked to see how much damage it did to Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think that just happened. Massive storms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, I got to check that because, you know, my family's in Hilton Head. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... uh, that it's amazing. 400 miles away in South Carolina. They get, and I saw a map that showed that the afternoon yesterday, there were clouds over Florida and Canada. Wow. That, wow. That, that, that Irma clouds actually span the yeah. entire United States and wow. went into Canada. It's amazing. Well, we should say for folks who weren't listening the last time that Constance was here, she is a research associate at the Urban Institute, yes. where she studies K-12 policies. And that other voice you hear is my colleague, Brandon Wright. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks. Been a little while since you've been on the show, Brandon. Uh, no, I've been on a lot, but you were out of town. So <laughs> it was Alyssa and I, I think, been on it like three times in the last month. Uh, I mean, uh, I know because I always listen when I'm traveling <laughs> and I'm here. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, good, guys. Well, hey, lots to talk about, lots happening in education. We are going to get out of D.C. this time and talk about something happening out there in the real world. Let's do our Ed Reform update. All right, Constance Brandon, a piece of news that came out recently from New York City. Yes. New York. I'm going to go into my Hamilton uh, singing, but I, maybe I should skip that. But uh, did you, have you seen Hamilton? Have you listened I have to the, not Have you yet. listened to the show? No, I'm way behind on pop You've culture. you got to listen to the show well, that, at least. that yeah. aspect of pop All right. culture. Uh, anyway, so uh, in New York City, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, who of course was elected with uh, overwhelming union support, uh, seems to be paying them back a bit. He is changing a longstanding policy on what is called the absent teacher reserve. Uh, this is a reserve of, my understanding is about 800 teachers. Yes. Uh, it, Joel Klein had decided that these these were teachers that basically can't find a job in the system. And Joel Klein decided it was worth just paying them yeah. and spending $100 million or so, so that he did not have to force them onto principals that didn't want them. De Blasio has, has now changed this, at least for 400 of the 800, yes. they will indeed be forced upon principals that don't want them. Uh, Mark Sternberg uh, from the Walton Family Foundation had a piece in the New York Times last week blasting this. Uh, others in the reform community up in arms as well. Should they be? Uh, let, let's talk about New York and then what this means more large, you know, writ large about our teacher policies. Uh, what, what do you think, Constance? So I think this is really interesting because if you look at some of the details, if you check out that New York Times piece, there's a few things that sort of jumped out at me, right? So one, most of these teachers are going to go to what are already high needs, hard to staff schools, right? We also know from the research that there's lots of work around late hiring, right? Mm -hmm. So we get our better teachers, we get them hired early. And so I was just struck because we kind of know a lot more about teachers than we did, you know, sort of before. And this seems like we're reversing many of the Mm -hmm. things that we know work 
when it comes to teachers. And so I thought maybe policy making wise, this is not the best decision. Because it feels like the dance of the lemon. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Brandon, for a contrarian view, what, <laughs> so what's your take? You already know somewhat what I'm going to say. Um, so I think whether the plan is good or bad depends on how it's implemented. I don't think it has to be bad. And I think that that view, that this is a terrible thing, no matter what, has been the view of a lot of articles I've seen out there, at least a few. Yep. Um, but if you really look at the details, right? So there are more than 800 people in this group. Okay. This is not the rubber room. Yep. Let's 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 uh, that's add right. that note early. And the rubber room, these are people who have been charged with disciplinary violations. Exactly. Yes. So that's a whole sexual abuse. Those are different people. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Sure. So there are 800 plus. Yep. They're only going to place 400 of them. Yep. Now you see all these stats that like a third of these teachers have been or are subject of some disciplinary hearing. About 12% have the lowest ratings possible. Mm-hmm. Something like 25% have been in this group for five or more years mm-hmm. and 50% have been in there for two or more years, right? right? Those 400 teachers don't have to come from any of those groups. Yeah. They could be brand new teachers who don't have a low performance grade, uh, don't have any hearings have only been in there temporarily, potentially came from just schools that have closed, right? Because why else are they here? So so these these are the less sour of the lemons. Maybe they're not sour <laughs> at all, right? And 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 so if these schools are already having trouble filling these spots and they're already paying these teachers, yeah. they're, 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 they're hard to fill spots because they aren't exactly roles that a lot of yeah, experienced but, but, teachers want. So it just seems strange to me that... The automatic reaction is, no, let's keep paying them and yeah. let's find other teachers who also yeah. currently don't have jobs all right, but, but, and but, put them in these spots. So it, it doesn't have to be bad. All right. But the Mark Sternberg argument was that the principals have decided that there is something about these teachers that makes them not right. want to hire them. They that that, that maybe a PR standpoint, so, hold on, it's so hold easy on. to spend. That, that, that again, that, they, uh, that when the principals have looked at them, they've decided that they are, I'm not to say lemons, but they're not a good fit for one reason or another. So they'd rather have an unfilled job yeah, rather that, than, than these people now here's what's interesting i i had a back and forth email with uh our our former trustee diane ravich still try to keep in touch even though she's gone to what i consider to be the dark side but uh, and i asked her diane diane how can you possibly defend this practice and her argument back was that she knows some people she's friends with that are in this reserve who are veteran teachers Mm -hmm. they make at the top of the salary scale Okay, say $90,000. And so the principals, because New York has weighted student funding, the principals say, hey, I can't afford to hire you. Or I could pay, I could hire two teachers for the same amount of money that it would take for me to hire you. And so that's why, and therefore it's unfair to these veteran teachers. You can even argue it's age discrimination, Mm -hmm. right? But doesn't that kind of point out the other problem, which is that that's what's wrong with our our salary schedule. But why are we paying 30-year veterans twice as much as we're paying five-year veterans if they're not any more effective or productive. Sure. And I mean, I think, I think it's interesting because it seems like this, this, the existence of this room is the result of many unintended consequences of lots of policies that have been layered over each other. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that you could get some efficiencies, maybe from pulling from this room. Yeah, sure. But it seems like it just kind of flies in the face of a lot of the things that we know about how teacher hiring works. Yeah. And I'll speculate too, that, that, that perhaps another reason why principals aren't pulling from here is you see that right when they talked about doing this policy, the New York times, the wall street journal, all these papers jumped on it immediately said it was terrible. I, when I first heard it, I tweeted that it was terrible too. Yeah. Right. But then I learned more about it. And when you get into the details, which you can't do in a headline, sure. Can't do in an immediate response. Like, It's so easy to spin and so easy for this to look bad that if a 
parent or somebody who who has it out for a principal or a school wants to say something mm-hmm. bad is like, look, they are filling their jobs from this group of teachers who can't get jobs. Like, yeah, that that's a bad thing. So it, it but 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 Brent, let's be honest here. I mean. New York City has been an anomaly. I mean, my understanding is that probably most school districts, certainly most urban districts, never made those reforms in the first place. I mean, certainly in Ohio, where we do plenty of work, you know, I think it is still the case that uh, in many districts, a principal has to take teachers, whether they want them or not, Mm -hmm. that there is still force placement or some version of it, or at least for tenured teachers or veteran teachers that, you know, that that the, the bottom line is... We don't have a way to remove ineffective teachers from the classroom, That's right. Uh, right? And or just teachers who are you know burned out or are not a good fit. I mean, we have this model that says once you get tenure, you are guaranteed a job for mm-hmm. life, and that factor is really messing up a lot of this stuff. Now, the argument back to Diane, you know, she says, well, look, if if you move to this place where now you're not getting paid anymore. Uh, you know, let, let, let's say teachers, they, they make huge progress in the first five years. So we should pay five-year veterans more than newbies. Sure. Okay. But then if you flattened out the pay scale after that, and so people got raises for cost of living, but that's about it, right? She'd say, well, who would ever teach for 30 years in that model? And the question is, well, do we need teachers to teach for 30 years? I mean, most other professional areas, you don't see people doing the same job for 30 years and getting paid dramatically more for it. What you tend to see is people either move up or they move out, right? They move up, they take on more responsibility, they get into supervisory positions, uh, you know. So this idea that you could have a career ladder sure. where teachers go and they end up uh, mentoring younger teachers, you know, maybe playing a quasi-administrative role, mm-hmm. and you could justify a higher salary. But, you know, why? Can, how can you justify one English teacher making $90,000 and another English teacher making $50,000 when they teach the same number of kids and are equally effective? I mean, the economists, that would blow their head up, right? I mean, I guess one thought is, so I feel like for a job, you can either, you know, pay a lot or pay a little bit and provide good benefits, right? How are you going to track somebody to a job? Is it going to be the promise or potential of high pay or is it going to be things like job security, security and right. pensions, et cetera, right? So if we don't have money or if, if a place doesn't want to pay teachers more, mm-hmm. then it seems like a decent way to attract them is to say, look, you'll have a job for life. You'll have a pension. You'll have protections. Mm-hmm. You'll have these great benefits, et cetera, et cetera, right? I grew up in the auto industry and almost everyone there had jobs for life yep. because they worked at one of the big three. They had a pension afterwards. That's going away. So mm-hmm. like it's thrown that whole sort of model mm-hmm. um, into question. But at least there you get a job and sort of, you know, computer science mm-hmm. or engineering. You do get raises every year. You have the potential to be a manager, you have the potential to be an executive, you have the potential to be a VP, right? There, there are all these mm-hmm. like... I guess if you remove protections, if you remove benefits, and, and you still pay teachers $40,000, yep. who, yeah. who's going to want to be a teacher? That's right. That's right. Your incentives are going to be messed up. But I think uh, another piece of this, too, is that it's just showing that the signaling is all off in teaching, right? So we don't have ways to sort of determine who's effective and bring them in and pay them correctly. I was really struck by the fact that they said like 25% of these people in this the absent reserve have been not in a job for over five years. And so I don't understand why that's not a signal that maybe mm-hmm. teaching is not the 
career for you. Right. I don't know. So it right. seems like some of the signaling is a right. little bit off. Right. I mean, and now again, maybe it's because they are at, you know, th- these are people who are very close to retirement. Sure. Right. And maybe. so starting yeah. over is very hard in the opportunity mm-hmm. cost. But hey, uh, it, it does. I think your point was so right, Constance. That means we have layered reforms on top of each other. Many of us are excited about way to student funding, you know, student-based budgeting, all that kind of stuff. But if you have that, as now New York does, but you haven't changed these other things, right. you get these yeah. perverse uh, outcomes. All right, great. Hey, this has got to be the most nuanced conversation about this issue that has ever taken place. That's so, good. All right. So listeners, share it with everyone you know, please. Get yes. the word out. All right. Excellent. All right. Constance Lindsay from the Urban Institute, thanks for joining us. Of course. Hope you'll come back. Yes. All right. It is now time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thank you, Mike. We were just talking about teacher pay. Yes, indeed. What was it like in your day? Amber? Well, I mean, this is really going to show my age. That's why I hate this question. But I was making 19000 my first year of teaching. And I was at night hosting tables at a restaurant down the street. I was exhausted because I didn't get home to like oh, 1230, 1 o'clock. So when I was hosting tables and oh, I was up at like 6 a.m. the next morning in the classroom, supposed to be wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. It was rough. Uh, very impressive, though. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> it is impressive. Indeed. Oh, by the way, I my forgot God. the part where I'm still living at home. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Well, all <laughs> so right. it's a really rough trying to make ends meet but anyway sad sad story from a long time ago oh my goodness wow all right well hey what you got for us this week hey i got a no frills non-peer-reviewed study i hardly ever do these but it was i don't know it just caught my eye i'll tell you why it was out by an organization called advanced ed that looks into how students are using technology in the classroom you ever heard of this advanced ed place uh, this is not advanced CTE. This is no, advanced. Ed. advanced ed. Uh, I get them. It's There's so, so many that sound familiar. Is this the accreditation yeah, agency? They do. Wow. Oh yeah, we we had a piece last week that bashed them. Okay. Uh, okay. But I'm also <laughs> on an advisory committee for them. Or oh something. okay. All yeah. right. Well, anyway. Anyway, so my, not, my bottom line is I, yes, I, I have heard okay. of them. Okay. I'm not going to be too kind about the methodology of their study. Oh, go ahead. That's fine. Um, but anyway, uh, according to their website, they partner with 34,000 schools and school systems, employing more than four million educators and enrolling more than 20 million students across the U.S. and 70 mm. other nations. So they got a lot of clients. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not, that, again, I don't usually cover this stuff. It's not rigorous. It's descriptive. <laughs> it's a convenient sample. That's, <laughs> Are you begging our listeners to turn saying, this off? Like, I have Burn. not lost all my research credibility here. I'm just telling you. <laughs> um, but it's it's convenient sample gleaned from their company's clients. All right. Okay. Um, and again, they provide accreditation and school improvement services. What caught my attention is that they had three years of class observation data totaling mm-hmm. 145,000 classroom observations. Well, all right. A lot in K-12 schools, okay, across 39 states. Mm-hmm. Big deal. Uh, and there's a lot of direct observation of kids and all sorts of context. They don't disaggregate the data by grade level, which is crazy, school type, hmm. or anything else. But okay. it's just like raw descriptive data on three items, okay? Yep. Um, it was a 30-item observation tool. It's called Effective Learning Observation. It's used in the context of providing data on continuous improvement to schools. So these are schools that are struggling and they're trying to give them data on how to better engage kids. Okay. Um, and then they have this one little part that's basically how are they engaging in technology. It's three items, okay? Uh, one to four scale. Four is that it's a very evident behavior. And one is that it's not observed, no evidence. Okay. Um, each observation lasted at a minimum of 20 minutes, okay? 145,000 of these things. They're looking for the use of technology as a regular part of the student experience. But I tell you, I could never find what how they define that. Technology, right, right. Does a pencil count? Probably not. What does it count? Uh, right. Number one, 50%, 57% of classroom observations showed 
no evidence slash not observed that students were using technology to gather, evaluate, or use information. Hmm. What's bother? But again, the methodology thing, it doesn't actually tell you whether what's the teacher lesson, what her lesson plan is. So were students supposed to be doing this in the context hmm. of the lesson? Right. But then again, it's such a broad wording of it that yeah. you would think it would be higher than 57%. Hmm. On item two, 63% of classroom observations showed no evidence of using technology to conduct research, solve problems, and create original works. Mm -hmm. And in 16% of classrooms, though, that was very evident. Mm -hmm. And then final item, 64%, again, these are all pretty high numbers, showed no evidence of using technology to communicate and work collaboratively with your peers. Is that Snapchat? I don't know. Um <laughs> And then they give you all this sort of other information, like 81%. These are interesting factoids. 81% yep. of teachers have access to personal computers and laptops in their classrooms. 81%? That's it. Well, that, was, well, that was pretty good. I think it'd be 100 at this point. Well, it was now. it's also three years old. So okay. And could it just be one computer that's in the room? Right. Like, uh, I had Apple IIe's in my room. It says yeah. plural, laptops with an S. Okay. Yeah. And their research shows little variation in the availability of technology across school type. This uh, is some... Right. right. Okay. So the digital divide is closing, is closing. perhaps. Okay. And then Pew Research apparently finds that 73% of teenagers have smartphones. Yeah. So I know analysts are sitting there hypothesizing, well, is this teacher preparation and training is the issue? Is it concerns about availability of technology at home, which really isn't a, a huge mm. problem anymore? Um, is it concerns about appropriate, inappropriate use of technology? Are they still hampering and not making, you know, what, what's going on here? Mm. Um, and they offer no real solutions except at the end, because again, this is about student engagement. And yep. they're saying, you know what, if kids are really engaged in learning, then they're not going to be off task and they're not going to be using technology inappropriately. Right, if they're engaged in ways that, that are meaningful. What struck me, I think, at the end was we've been having these conversations for what, 20 years? Like, yeah. why yeah. aren't we yeah. using technology better? Why, yeah. la, 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 la. And I just feel like in some cases we've got all this talk of personalized learning, but in some ways the conversation has still not gotten off where it was yeah. 20 years ago. But let's, uh, you know, <laughs> plenty of people would say, hey, this is good news that not everybody's rushing to use technology. Yes. I mean, we've got that new study out of higher ed that found that when you had laptops, kids had laptops mm -hmm. in the classroom, they learned less. That yeah, they, they actually, were they, that they were inappropriately yeah, using, they, I guess. You know, right. I mean, so the, the temptation is so great to be yeah. uh, distracted. Can't you and, just put and, a bunch I of filters mean, on those things? I don't know. I, I, don't know. I grew up in an age where uh, when I was in undergrad, we didn't really bring laptops and didn't take notes there. But when I got to law school, you're supposed to, you know, essentially write down 70% of what the teacher says. So, you know, you can't really write that fast and you can't really mm -hmm. organize those notes. So you took notes on your computer. Uh, what I found, at least personally, and I recently saw something on Twitter, um, some, 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 some academic uh, talking about this, how when you take notes by hand, mm -hmm. you remember a lot more. You actually right. internalize a ton more mm -hmm. than when you take notes on a computer. So although in law school we could record more, mm -hmm. we internalized less. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And so there is, right, tech can increase certain abilities and, you know, open mm -hmm. certain doors, but I think yeah. there there's there's often a cost to it that that you might not Right. I mean, I'm honestly, and I'd love to hear from teachers on this. I'm honestly questioning how do you even teach today without using technology? Yeah. Like I'm up here giving a lecture on, mm. I don't know, whatever, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, whatever. Right. Like, aren't you going to have kids right. like say, hey, right. look up this, look up that. Like your, your laptop's right there in front of you while you're teaching. Yeah. You're kind of facilitating a discussion, yeah. what you want them to be looking up and, and when learning. when they write the essay on it, they're going to write it on a computer or a laptop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's just, I mean, I think we're really talking about like, how do we engage them in 
been learning, not just how do we like take notes or Google something. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. know. I just, I obviously haven't been in the classroom in a long time, but it seems to me like it would so effortlessly flow mm-hmm. from what you're teaching that it would be hard not to use technology. Yeah. Fascinating point too is that they don't define technology. Mike makes a good point that, you know, technically yeah. a pencil is technology. Yeah. A piece of chalk is technology. Like yeah. Yeah. a simple stick is like the first technology, right? I mean, maybe if you're like, I assume that's probably not uh, what they're talking about, but you know, the reason we have to deal, you know, use scraps like this, uh, (laughs) as you might describe it is because again, we have so little information about what's actually happening in the classroom. Hey, I have a big idea about that coming out oh, soon in Education oh. Next, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> You're not going to give us a little How hint. we're going to solve this problem. Hidden cameras, right? Uh, Something like that? Uh, <laughs> how'd you guess? Not hidden. Uh, they don't not be hidden. hidden. Yeah, but cameras. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. It. Every yeah. classroom. All right, and you Mike, don't have Mike, to pay Big Brother observer. Patrella. Yeah, yeah, exactly. like Because this is exactly. why it was such a big deal to have 145,000 yes. classroom observations. Yes, exactly. Yeah, with real people. So, hey, exactly. I'm with you. Yeah, that's right. Cameras, big data. Come on, yeah. machine learning. It's yeah, it's all going to happen. Okay. Yeah. Good scrap from Advanced Ed. Right. So, we didn't throw him completely under the bus. All right. Yeah, completely. All right. Thank you, Amber. And until next week, that is all the time that we've got. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.